Uh, today is Anzac Day, uh, when we remember with thanks the sacrifice made by those in our armed forces. Although, from what I hear, the training and selection process can be almost as hard as the reality of war. Uh, I've heard both David Hastie and Andrew Hastie describe the selection process that they went through for, for David, for the Navy clearance divers, for Andrew, for the Army SAS. Uh, and some of the tasks sound almost impossible. Enduring and achieving the most difficult missions you can imagine on no sleep, no food, no rest. Now, apparently, it's the theory of the worst-case scenario. If you've been through the worst-case scenario, everything else looks easy by comparison. If you can survive the selection process and the training, then they know that whatever else turns up in real uh, combat situations, then you can handle it. Now, the passage we're looking at today has got a perfect example of this, of the worst-case scenario. We've got Jesus up against his number one enemy. We've got the power of the gospel against the most unlikely person in the world to become a Christian. Now, you may think you've got a friend at work who's an impossible case. Or maybe an atheistic lecturer at uni. Or maybe a family member who ridicules you constantly. Or a school friend who you just can't imagine ever becoming a Christian. It may be that you're here today and you're not a Christian and for whatever reason you just can't imagine yourself becoming one. Well, let me tell you, however unlikely you think it's ha it, it happening, it's nothing compared to this guy we're looking at today. By the end of the chapter, we'll see that if the power of the gospel can change this guy, it can change anyone. His name's Saul. We've met him before. He's the young man we saw at the end of chapter 7, cheering as they stone Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Saul is the guy standing there saying, here, let me look after your coat so that you can throw harder. At the start of chapter 8, it says, Saul is there watching with approval as Stephen dies. And then within a few verses, he's graduated from holding the coats to leading house-to-house -house searches. Verse 3, hunting for Christians, doing his best to stamp out this new religion. By the time we get to chapter 9 that we read this morning, he's taken it a step further. Uh, still breathing murderous threats, but no longer in Jerusalem. He's, he's heard there may be some Christians in Damascus, 300 kilometres to the north. Now that's serious, isn't it? It's not Bethlehem, six kilometres away. This is Damascus. So verse 2, he goes to the high priest. He gets letters of introduction. He gets references to the synagogues in Damascus. They say something like, please cooperate with my friend Saul here as he arrests, beats up and chains these people who follow the heretic Jesus. He sets out on the road north. He's got a posse with him. He's full of zeal. He's ready for action. He's Mr. Worst Case Scenario. But verse 3, Saul the hunter is about to become the hunted. He's about to have a life-changing experience. It's one that's so big, it's got a couple of expressions named after it. They've come into the English language from this chapter. He saw the light. 
He had a Damascus Road experience. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't know who's speaking. He asks the question. The answer comes back, verse 5, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The same Jesus, Saul was absolutely convinced, was dead and buried. The same Jesus, Saul thought, was blaspheming God by claiming to be equal to him. Except now, rather than being under God's judgment, this Jesus has been vindicated and beaten death. And here he is, standing alive and powerful. But that's not the only surprise for Saul. The next is that Jesus is siding with Paul's Uh, with Saul's victims. As Saul persecuted these defenceless, weak Christians, he was actually treading on the toes of the king of the universe. Jesus is saying, you hurt my followers, you're hurting me. I mean, that's quite a mistake to make, isn't it? It's like the bully trying to beat up the little kid in the school playground but not realising that the little kid has a very big brother. Uh, You mess with my brother, you're messing with me. Now that completely swings the balance in favour of Jesus' followers, now that Jesus is on their side. This powerful big brother then gives Saul a command. Uh, Not get away, but get up and go into the city, verse 6, and you will be told what to do. Who's the boss now? Uh, Saul's posse, they hear the noise, but they don't know what's happening. Uh, Verse 8, when Saul opens his eyes, he's literally been blinded by the light. And so they have to lead him by the hand a few miles into Damascus, and he's dazed and confused. And it's not quite the entrance he expected. He'd imagined that he would arrive in the city, Mr Worst Case Scenario, with letters of introduction in his pocket, licensed to kill, determined to crush Christianity, riding into town with his posse, and the Christians scattering, and then him leading them out of town in chains. But instead, he's led into Damascus, blind and helpless. And we're told that for the next three days he's stuck in his room, not eating or drinking. What's he doing? I'm guessing re-evaluating his whole life. There's some serious contemplation going on here. Spending a good bit of time reading the scriptures and praying and reassembling it all. This time with Jesus as the centre. Maybe thinking back over his mistakes, confessing his sin. Jesus is doing a work on him, I'm sure, removing his spiritual blindness. What a change, what a turnaround. But God has a way of doing that with people, with proud people, with worst-case scenario people, turning their world on its head. Over the last year, we've heard from some people like that in our church that God has done something similar with. People like Peter Christopher, 
accomplished, successful, but he was heading down an empty path. Or David Lim, proud, upstanding, but unforgiven, distant from the God who'd made him. Or Jack and Kiki Quang from our nine o'clock service, ambitious, intelligent, motivated to succeed. Uh, They turn up in Australia with nothing, but they're ignorant of the Saviour who died for them. Or Jake Shadwick, intelligent, moral, but unable to deal with the guilt of his own sinful nature. Or Leanne Hall, at her rock bottom, helpless, enslaved by addictions and despairing. But all of those people, and lots more of you sitting here, experienced a Damascus Road experience. When they saw the light, when Jesus revealed himself to them, maybe not exactly the same as Saul, but he revealed himself to them. For some of those people it took a day, for others it took a month or a year, but they met Jesus and he humbled them and forgave their sin and gave them a fresh start and turned them around and transformed them. God's got a way of doing that with people. Perhaps you're not a Christian, but maybe you've got this growing awareness of who Jesus is. Maybe you're in the process of meeting him. It may have taken months or even years. You've watched people who follow him. You've heard and read about him in the Bible. You're coming to understand what he's like, that he loves you, that he's died for you, that he deserves to be the king of your life, the way he's the boss of the world. Maybe you've done all of that but never actually decided to follow him, to bow before him. Today would be a great way to do that, a great day to do that. Or maybe you want to spend some time thinking about it. Why not join our Christianity Explored course starting in a few weeks? Seven Monday nights investigating what the Bible says about life with Jesus. Well, that was Saul. Let's move on in our story. Uh, verse 10, we're introduced to another character, Ananias, a Christian in Damascus, maybe living only a couple of streets away from where Paul is staying. Jesus has a message for him as well, and he tells him in a vision to do the last thing in the world he feels like doing. Now, it's funny, isn't it? A lot of the time when people say that they feel like God's spoken to them, it seems the thing they think God is telling them to do is the thing they most feel like doing. But this is different. Ananias hears the voice of Jesus very clearly and you can see what Jesus says to him in verse 11. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus called Saul. He's praying. He'll be expecting you because he's had a vision too to tell him that you're coming. Now Ananias knows exactly who Saul is. Verse 13, he's heard what he's done to Christians in Jerusalem. And he's heard that he's coming to Damascus to make trouble. And so the last thing Ananias wants to do is to face up to Saul. What will he do? Will he be obedient to the vision? He goes. Last thing he wants to do, because verse 15, Jesus tells him what the plan is. He has a job for Saul and it's important. He says, verse 15, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he has to suffer for my name. There's a couple of neat twists there, isn't there? This Saul, who was such a determined Jew, so determined to defend God's name, to get rid of Christianity, Jesus is going to turn him into Christianity's number one missionary, to bear Jesus' name before the nations, to non-Jews, to Gentiles. But not only that, this Saul who caused such suffering will himself suffer for the name of Jesus. Who says God doesn't have a sense of humour or a poetic sense of justice? So Ananias, I'm guessing, in fear and trembling, heads to Straight Street, he knocks on the door, Saul's expecting him, he puts his hands on Saul and Saul's sight is restored, his physical sight as well as his spiritual sight. Verse 17 and 18, he receives the Holy Spirit, he's baptised and rather than being a persecutor, he becomes a follower of Jesus. And did you notice the wonderful way Ananias addresses Saul? Brother Saul. Two guys from completely different worlds. One day earlier, three days earlier, uh, one would have happily stomped on the other. But when they meet, when they both meet Jesus, they, they're brothers. It's the wonderful thing about Christians. You can meet someone from a completely different background who looks different, speaks a different language expresses their faith in a different way but when you work out that they're Christian there's an, there's an instant connection there's a bond they're a brother or a sister I've heard people talk about meeting someone in their workplace they thought they were the only Christian but then they meet someone and it's it's great brother Saul he says the Lord Jesus has sent me so that you may see again Is Jesus calling you to be an Ananias? Is there a scary boundary he's asking you to cross? Is there a worst case scenario for you to speak to? Family member, neighbour, workmate. Some of you who've been here for a long time remember Tim Wilson. Uh, He was a member at this church. He he worked here. Uh, He's now a prison chaplain at Parkley Prison. It's a place with plenty of worst-case scenarios. There's a wing there of the worst sorts of sexual offenders. They can't mix with the rest of the prisoners. They'll be killed. Tim says Jesus is calling him to be an Ananias to those Saul's. He does it because he thinks if God can change Saul, God can change anyone. Now, sadly, one of the problems Tim faces is when these new believers leave prison, he has trouble connecting them to churches. Churches are suspicious. They're uncertain about whether to trust this new believer when they know the background. Now, now that's what happens with Saul as well. It starts off okay. Probably Ananias tells the local Christians what happened. Saul spends a few days with them. But verse 20, before long, he's preaching to the Jews in Damascus. He heads down to the synagogue, but not preaching against Christians. This time he's preaching that, verse 20, Jesus really is the Son of God. Saul's absolutely convinced of that. I mean, who wouldn't be after what he's been through? And so his first instinct is to tell everyone how wrong he's been. 
And the people in the synagogue are absolutely amazed and dumbfounded and puzzled. Isn't this the same guy who, who raised havoc in Jerusalem, arresting Christians? And the trouble is, Paul, uh, Saul does it so well. He proves again and again that Jesus is the Christ, the one the scriptures were pointing to all along. And so eventually, verse 23, the Jews decide to kill him. That's what you do when you lose an argument, apparently. You, you kill the person who's beating you. But they smuggle him out of Damascus over the wall in a basket. And he heads back to Jerusalem. But poor guy, he's not even welcome there. The, the Jews in Damascus don't want to know him and the Christians in Jerusalem don't want to know him either. Verse 26, I guess you can understand how they feel. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not really believing he was a disciple. They think maybe it's a trap. Uh, he's trying to infiltrate us. Uh, so Paul's caught in the middle. Both sides are against him. Both sides are booing him. It's like someone turning up to a Parramatta-Penrith game wearing a Broncos jersey. Like, both sides don't want to know who he is. But there's one person who believes in him, Barnabas. But don't forget that's actually his nickname. Uh, his real name is Joseph. Uh, we came across him already way back in chapter 4, verse 36, the early days of the church. Uh, 4.36 we read, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabash, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is generous, encouraging, considerate, trusting Barnabas. But more than that, he's firm and courageous as well, isn't he? Maybe he hears Saul preaching or, or maybe he's heard the news from Damascus, but he believes Saul. He, he takes Saul to the apostles, he explains what's happened how the Lord has spoken to him on the road and how he's now preaching about Jesus. We need more Barnabases in our church, just like we need more Ananiases. We need soft-hearted, brave people. They often don't go together. Soft-hearted and brave. People who are willing to cross a barrier that scares them, to speak beyond their comfort zone. We need sons of encouragement who see the good in people, who have the faith to see that God can change anyone, who are prepared to forgive because God has forgiven. We need more Barnabases. And so, verse 28, Saul stays with them. He moves around Jerusalem, once again speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. And he debates with the Grecian Jews. He may even have gone to the same synagogue that Stephen went to in chapter 7 that got him into trouble. Because, uh, once again, the Jews there try to kill him. And so the brothers take him down to Caesarea on the coast and they stick him on a boat to Tarsus. And he heads back to his hometown, back to safety. Now, something like eight years will pass while Saul is in Tarsus, maybe doing some travels, but we don't know, according to Acts, what he gets up to. We don't hear from him again until chapter 13. 
I want to finish up with a few observations, though. The first one, if you were one of the Christians back then and you saw what had happened to Paul, to Saul, you'd be dumbfounded, wouldn't you? You would be in awe of the power of the risen Jesus. You would sense that you were part of something big. Because even your worst case scenario, your worst nightmare, that Saul would turn up on your doorstep, Jesus has that under control. The risen Christ can handle that worst case scenario. And he promises to stand beside you as you endure it. Now that's got to be a reassurance for our Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia or Libya, persecuted, arrested, beaten, even killed because they're following Jesus. But this Jesus they're following can even deal with Saul. And so in spite of appearances, they need to keep trusting that the risen Christ can handle it for them as well. He can bring victory out of the most complete failures, conversions in the most unlikely people. And it's an encouragement for us, isn't it, as we think about our worst-case scenarios, those most unlikely to ever become Christians, those on the too-hard list. Perhaps we think they're too worldly or too immoral or too rich or too content, too academic, too far gone. Saul was like that. He turns up back in Jerusalem as a Christian and they say there's no way in the world this could happen. Saul is the one who persecutes Christians. Now he is one. It's never too hard for God. Let that encourage you. Let Saul encourage you. Let him encourage you to keep praying for those too hard people. Whoever it might be, Jesus specialises in worst case scenarios. Which is interestingly what Saul himself thinks. He sees himself as a worst case scenario. Let me leave you with Saul's own words. Saul becomes Paul. He becomes the greatest missionary of all time and he writes these words to his young friend Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example to those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. If he can do it to me, he can do it to anyone. And then notice how he finishes. He finishes in worship, amazed at the grace of God. Now to the King, which I think is Jesus, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we look at 
the non-believers or the not yet believers around us and we, we doubt, we doubt uh, that they could ever become Christians. Uh, we thank you for the encouragement today that if Saul can, anyone can, uh, no one is, is uh, too far for you to reach them. Uh, so we think about uh, people we know, friends, neighbours, relatives, workmates, and we bring them to you and we pray for them. We pray that you would reveal yourself to them. We pray that you might be gracious enough to use us, that you would be gracious enough to work in us courage and faith so that Jesus would be honoured. Amen.